Good evening, everybody. If you're a guest here tonight, my name is Malcolm Duncan. I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do that. Our prayer is that God would speak this evening. Richard Vermbrandt was a pastor in the Romanian church who was persecuted for many years. In a book that he wrote in the late 1960s, early 1970s called Tortured for Christ, he told something of his story. And one of the lines I have never forgotten, alone, cold and hungry in my cell, I danced for joy. It's not the line that you expect to come after somebody's story of suffering and struggling. In the book, he said that um, when he suffered, when he was beaten, he came to the conclusion that if he was allowed to be beaten in order to proclaim Christ, then he would be happy with the beating so that he could proclaim Christ. Never forgotten his story. Over the years, I um, have worked in areas of the world where to be a Christian is to put your life at risk. Not so long ago, I was in a part of the Middle East where Christians had been beheaded, where they had been murdered, and I was trying to support and help some families. And um, I was amazed to see that many of the families that I visited had crosses hanging from their windshields, their, their, their rearview mirrors, or on their windows in fairy lights. And I said to them, isn't that a dangerous thing to do? Couldn't you suffer as a result? And they said, probably. But Christ has never apologized for us, so why should we apologize for him? Compare that to Terry Pratchett, the late brilliant author, who when he spoke of God and suffering, described God as an evil um, dealer of a deck of cards who didn't tell you the rules of the game and took delight in hurting you. The question of suffering is probably the biggest apologetic question in today's society. It has been for centuries. Where is God when we suffer? Where is he when our world goes wrong? Where is he when bad things happen. To be very specific, why does God let bad things happen to good people? You see, I'm guessing that many of us would be able to work out in our heads, whether we have faith in Jesus Christ or not, that there are bad things that happen to people that we would describe as bad. doesn't mean they are bad, it just means that in our heads they're bad. And somehow, without ever saying it, we would think, well, they deserve that. I'm not sure I would accept the premise, but many of us would think that way. They deserved it. As a theologian and as a person who is responsible for pastoring churches, your pastor for many of you, the question becomes narrowed down for me because I have, over the last 30 years, sat at the bedsides of people who have suffered. I've held their hands as they've died. I've 
held the, the limp form of children who have died of HIV or cholera or typhoid in India and in Cambodia and in South Africa and in Mozambique and in Zimbabwe and in Malawi and in Senegal. I've watched as families have gone through the most horrific things, terrible things done to them, terrible things that they've gone through. And in my head, I have to say that often I've thought, this isn't fair. This isn't right. There's something deeply wrong about this. So the question narrows down to what do we say to the question, where's God when we suffer? Where's God when bad things happen to good people? I want you to turn with me for a moment in the Bible, if you would, to the New Testament, to the book of James, which is where we will start our conversation this evening. Most people that have um, investigated who wrote James believe that it was written by Jesus' half-brother. Chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Well, James gives us the answer. Suffering produces endurance. Amen. Good night. Thank you for coming. That is the answer that James fundamentally gives. That when we suffer, it produces something in us which strengthens us, strengthens our resolve, strengthens our determination, helps us to be more focused and clearer about what it is we are to do with our lives if we are followers of Jesus Christ. There are many who have grasped those words and held on to them for dear life. There are others who have rejected them because they've not been able to square this particular challenge in their heads or in their hearts. And whilst James is clear and his words are true, it's hard for us to accept such things straightforwardly because we go through life and we face difficulties and uncertainties and challenges and we know people for whom life is difficult. There are some families in this church community that I have uh, got to know a little bit in the last uh, month or so And their lives just seem to be marked with a greater degree of suffering. I don't know why that is. I don't know why in one family people die in quick succession. I don't know why in one family issues around health and finances seem to hit again and again and again. But I've seen it 
many times. And many of us can find ourselves in situations where we look at families going through things like that and we think we're really praying for them and we don't really understand what they're going through. And part of us, if we're really honest, are so grateful to God that we've not had to go through it. So there is a mystery in suffering. There's a mystery in why it happens. Christian theology has many answers to the reasons and the causes of suffering. But they can sound glib to someone going through it. I could say to you this evening that fundamentally suffering is as a result of sin. And I would be speaking truth. That sin and disobedience to God has fractured us. It's fractured our view of the world and it's fractured the world itself. The very creation is fractured. It's broken and therefore as a result there is brokenness and suffering and struggle. I could say that fracture itself is the cause of suffering. Personal fracture in our understanding of ourselves. So we seek identification. We seek purpose and meaning and significance in all the wrong things. And as a result, we suffer the consequences. I could say that somehow in community, there is fracture. So marriages break, families go off the rails, businesses fail, nations fight one another, tribes are jealous of one another, languages resent one another. There's something in the human race that is always about asserting its right and ascendancy over other people. And I would be right. I could say that the very earth was fractured. Paul argues that in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. He says the creation itself groans as a result of sin. The water, the earth, the very land that we walk on, the way this whole planet, the, the whole solar system, the universe is, is um, constructed has been broken because of sin. And I would be right. I could take you to the beginning of the Jewish and the Christian story. Genesis chapter 3, after the first um, man and woman have fallen and the consequences of their sin is outworked in their lives, death enters the scene. Do you know why we struggle with death so much, folks? It's not very complicated because we weren't born for it. You struggle with death because you were born for life. Death is an interloper. It's an invader into the created order. God made us for life. So we struggle with death because it's not what we were made for. It enters the world as a consequence of sin. And, and those first primordial people are, are, are given the consequences of their actions one is that there will be struggle and pain and sorrow in their hearts and in their lives. And if you read the story carefully in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, we're told that weeds and tares will grow in the earth as a result of it. The very earth has the seed of dissent and suffering and struggle and difficulty placed in it as a result of this. I could point you to Genesis chapter 4 where the first murder takes place. To Genesis chapter 6 and 7 where the first national conflicts take place. I could take you through the first 12 chapters of Genesis and you could see in it the seed, the beginnings of the struggle and the suffering that the world has seen ever since. And I would be right. I could suggest to you that many of us have been converted with a wrong gospel. 
We came to faith in Jesus Christ, being told that he would heal us, that we would never suffer again, that we would never struggle and nothing wrong would happen. Something's wrong with what you've been taught. Because Jesus Christ never promised that you wouldn't go through sorrow and difficulty. And you may have been converted in what I would describe as a transaction salvation. I'll come to God because he'll do stuff for me. And when he doesn't do it, you may not leave faith, but you abandon part of it. Because you have been taught that this is what God does for those who trust him. And perhaps you trusted him in order to have him do it. And when he doesn't, you feel disappointed with him. He hasn't lived up to his end of the bargain. It's very difficult and uncomfortable for me to look around a room in a Pentecostal church and say, God doesn't heal everybody. But it's true. He doesn't say yes to everything you ask. He's not a talisman in heaven that will jump when you and I tell him. And the theology that creates a God that always takes away the difficulties, always takes away the challenges, may make us feel good for a little while, but in the long term, it will destroy us because it leaves us with a shallow faith, with a faith that isn't grounded in the realities of life. And even if we are blessed and fortunate enough not to struggle and not to suffer, we look around us and we see people in our world, in our families, in our communities, in our friendship groups that do suffer. I think somehow one of the reasons that we often suffer or struggle with suffering is also because our very understanding of ourselves and of the world has been broken. So we make judgments about people that can't speak or can't see or can't walk. And we look at them and say their lives are so terrible, their lives are so depleted, their lives are so reduced. But the reduction isn't in them, it's in us. We've allowed ourselves to buy into the idea that to be normal, to be fully human, everything has to function according to the way you and I would want it to. But God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses complained about being called by him to go and lead the Jewish people out of exile and out of um, uh, captivity in Egypt into freedom in the promised land, I can't speak And God responded to him, who made the deaf person? And who made the person who cannot see? Is it not me? You see, at the heart of Christian and Jewish thinking, there is a fundamental conviction. Every person that breathes is equal in the sight of God. Their value, their worth, their significance, their importance matters. Not because of what they can contribute, but because of who they are. They are human beings. Those are all part answers. That we have an enemy that wants to destroy us called Satan. That he wants to steal our joy and steal our lives and steal our hope. They're all good answers. That he comes to take away our strength and our life and our purpose and to force us into suffering. But I think probably you've heard them all many times before. And in your heart, there is still a question. I'll come to it in a moment. 
But here's what suffering doesn't prove. It doesn't prove that God is a monster. It doesn't prove that he doesn't care. It doesn't prove that you're living with the consequences of disobedience necessarily. It doesn't prove that he's evil and vindictive. It doesn't warp his character. I'm always struck by this. I've been asked many times, why did God let that happen? Why did God let my loved one die? Why did God let me go through this? I've asked it myself. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment or two. But if we're going to be fair... If you ask the question, why did God take her? Then you also have to ask the question, why did God give her to me in the first place? Why do we only ask the question when something is taken from us? And we fail to ask it when someone is given to us. Why did God trust me with the family that I have? If I'm willing to ask that question, then I can also ask the question, why did he take them? But to only ask why he took them and not to ask why I was trusted with them is to demonstrate that in my heart I have a sense of entitlement. That I think I deserve to be happy. And then we begin to get to the heart of some of the issues for being really alive and human and living in community as the Bible describes. Because the Bible doesn't describe us as deserving happiness. Or deserving life or deserving family or deserving community. It isn't your entitlement or mine to have a wonderful husband or a wonderful wife and 4.2 children and a house with three bedrooms and wooden shutters. It's not our entitlement never to be sick. It's not our entitlement never to go through hard times. And perhaps we've allowed ourselves to become a little bit too entitled as human beings. And that results in a sense of um, rejection of who God is and what he says because he doesn't give us the things that we think we deserve. I want to try and answer this question by taking you on a journey for the next 10 minutes or so in my own life. I'm trying to help you understand how God has spoken to me about this. And to paint the context, I want to help you understand that my childhood wasn't a happy one. How many of you have heard the little prayer, I lay my body down to sleep, I pray that God my soul shall keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray that God my soul shall take. Have you heard that? Well, here is my version of that. I lay my body down to sleep. I pray that God my soul shall keep. Please take me, God, before I wake. I didn't want to see another day. I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but my childhood was difficult. Then... When I married my wife, we were blessed with such a wonderful sense of God's purpose and meaning in our lives. Our second child was born, Benjamin, 
And from he was eight weeks until he was 18, we didn't know whether he was going to make it to the end of each year. On life support 15 or 16 times. If you've ever been a father that has prayed the most ridiculous prayers, God, let me die so he can live. It's a stupid prayer. But it doesn't sound stupid when you're the dad. Then Riona was born, our youngest, and Debbie almost died. Perhaps one day I'll share this story with you, but in 1999, I sat in a birthing room and a consultant turned to me in a moment of intervention and said, Reverend Duncan, you need to listen to me. I cannot save both your child and your wife. So which one do you want me to save? To be confronted with that question. And then to have your wife pulled away from you. And the last words that she says, you shout at her is, don't you dare die on me. Is difficult. Then in 2002, my father dropped dead. Then in 2014, my brother's partner committed suicide. Four months later, my sister's son killed himself. Four months after that, his dad, my brother-in-law, brokenhearted, killed himself. Eight months after that, my eldest brother, whose partner had committed suicide, collapsed and died. And six months after that, my mother died. And in the midst of all of that, my journey through suffering and struggle has been personal. In 2009, I sat in a doctor's room and he said to me, you have cancer in your vocal cords. You're never going to speak again. My daughter, my eldest daughter, who now worships at UT in Belfast, came. She was uh, 11 with a recording machine. He didn't mean, by the way, preach. He meant speak. Came with a recording machine and she said to me, would you take this, Dad? I said, what for? She said, I'd like you to record what you'd say at my wedding. So I did. Then when they managed to get the gross off my vocal cords and I got the all clear, I destroyed it on the advice of a counsellor. My walk through grief and sorrow and suffering and struggle has been a very personal one. And in it, I think God has taught me some things that have helped me that I hope will help you. Most of them have come from one story contained in the Bible in John chapter 11. It's the story of a man who died and his two sisters who were mad and angry at Jesus because of it. I'd like to read it with you. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to, the Ju- to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind? And how could he not have kept this man from dying? The story goes on and we read of Jesus standing at the tomb and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And this dead man is brought back to life. What are the lessons that that story has taught me about suffering and struggle that have helped me? And I pray they might help you. The first is a very simple thing. In the first four verses, you read very simply and very profoundly twice that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus' death had nothing to do with the fact that Jesus didn't love him. 
When we go through struggle and suffering and strain and pain and heartbreak, in this case, losing someone that we love, it isn't evidence that God doesn't love us. As if we need to emphasize it, Jesus says, we read in the story twice, Jesus loved them. He loved them. And if you are going through suffering and struggle and heartbreak tonight, let me tell you something. From the very depths of my soul, God loves you. He loves you. He he is passionate about you. He wants to help you. He is closer than you could ever imagine. The Old Testament says this, that God is the God in whose hand our very breath is. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Secondly, this death was real. It's a farcical story at the beginning because you have Jesus saying to his friends, Lazarus has fallen asleep and they assume that he means that he's asleep and not dead. And he says, no, he's dead. And it sounds funny. And you're allowed to giggle at the story, by the way. He says, no, Lazarus is dead. Because this death was real. This suffering was present. It was in front of them. And they couldn't avoid it. And then they misunderstood it altogether. And their response was, well, why don't we all go so that we can all die with you? They were on a completely different wavelength to what Jesus was trying to say to them. I'd love to say to you that you're going to avoid suffering, that it's never going to happen, that you're never going to have to stand at a graveside and go through heartbreak and struggle. But I'd be lying. And any preacher that tells you that is lying to you. They're not telling you the truth. The third thing that that story taught me is that God can handle my questions. Both Mary and Martha are furious at Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's not a hint of a rebuke from Jesus. There's not a single slither of evidence that he's angry at them asking the question. If you have lost a brother, then you will know what it feels like to say that. I had prayed for my brother Colin for 30 years. And he was like a father to me. And the day after he died, I walked into a woodland and I opened my voice and I shouted at God, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And God could cope with the question. Read the Psalms. He's big enough and strong enough to deal with our questions. You don't have to hide them. It's not as if he doesn't know them already. Why is the deepest and most profound question that people ask in the face of suffering? I asked it when my father died. I asked it when um, my family members died over the last few years. Why, 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 why? And God didn't give me an answer. And then I realized this. One day, he will answer every question that I have. And on the day that he answers them, the questions will no longer matter. Am I willing to trust them in the meantime? Oh my goodness, I have a list of questions. And I'm not ashamed of them. And God isn't afraid of them. And I refuse 
to have a Christian faith that is afraid to ask the honest questions of faith. When I buried my nephew, I went into a room where almost nobody else was a Christian. And here's how I began my funeral sermon. I buried all of those loved ones. All of you have many questions today, but none of you have as many questions as I do. I don't stand as a guru with all the answers. I stand in faith believing in this simple conviction of the scriptures. God is good. And his love endures forever. And I will hold on to that slither of truth and allow it to shape my responses. And then we get to some of the meat, some of the challenging, difficult things of this passage and one of them is these, when, when, when Martha has her encounter with Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds, your brother will live again. Do you believe this? And she gave a religious answer. Yes, I believe that there will be a resurrection on the last day. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And here's the answer that sits at the beating heart alongside one other that I'm going to explain to you in a moment of the Christian response to suffering. Death and suffering never get the last word in a Christian's life. Jesus says to this Sister, yes, he's dead, but this isn't the end of the story. Of course, he goes on to resurrect Lazarus. But the deeper lesson is for all of us. He may be dead, but it's not the end of the story. Cancer never wins in the life of a believer. Death never wins in the life of a believer. Struggling and suffering never win in the life of a believer. God always wins in the life of a believer. Whether that looks like struggle and suffering to us because our minds have been um, diluted and our convictions have been changed into a sense that we have to see everything here and now or because we just don't want to face the reality, death and suffering never win in the life of a believer. Even when it looks like they've won, they've lost. Suffering doesn't get the last word in Lazarus's life. Life gets the last word in Lazarus's life. Hope gets the last word in Lazarus's life. And Mary and Martha have the privilege of seeing it. Some of us don't. Not yet. But it's only a yet. In the end, God wins. He overcomes sorrow. He overcomes suffering. He overcomes struggle. And I, Malcolm Duncan, I'm so tied up with the here and the now that when given the choice, I would hold on to now rather than the eternal reality. I allow myself to be seduced by the idea that if I don't see it, it's not real. 
And that what I see and feel and touch in my 70 years on earth is more important than what I will spend in eternity. That's the root of some of this issue. Because we think we can't let anybody go through something now because it isn't fair when we remember, however, that there is an eternity where they will be free and given life and hope and joy and purpose and meaning. It changes something now if we let it. Many of us won't let it. Why did Lazarus have to die? People around Jesus in John chapter 11 in verse 37 ask the same question. He can open the eyes of blind people. Why can't he stop this man from dying? He's supposed to be his friend. Why did Jesus not say to Mary and Martha, girls, stop crying. Everything's going to be all right in 20 minutes. Why did he allow them to break their hearts? Why did he let them sob? It's a cruel man that does that, isn't it? When he knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus in about 20 minutes, half an hour, why did he let these two sisters break their hearts? Have you ever thought about that? Not only that, why did he break his heart? Why didn't he smile and say, it's all going to be okay. Lord, bring him back. Lazarus, come out. Job's a good one. What was he doing? Here's where we get to something in Christianity that you'll get nowhere else. See, an atheist will say to you, why does your God allow suffering? Well, we have some answers to that. Let me ask the atheist, is your life just chance? Is that it? Let me turn the tables for a moment. How do you explain suffering in the world? How do you cope with it? How do you walk through the darkest valleys? If you're saying to me, I'm weak because I rely on a God who's present, then I'm weak. God isn't my crutch. He's my lifeline. He's my oxygen supply. I couldn't get through a single day without him. And I'm happy to confess my utter weakness and my utter inability to make sense of life without him. Not because I'm stupid, not because I'm daft, not because I'm naive, but because I've come to trust him. And I've come to realize something profound in the middle of suffering, that suffering has taught me, you don't have to understand God to trust him. You don't have to be able to explain everything about God to trust him. You just have to know him. I think he let Mary and Martha cry. Because he was redeeming grief itself. He was giving us permission to weep and break our hearts and ask the questions. I think he didn't rebuke Mary and Martha because he was saying, you can ask me. You can bring your honest doubts and your uncertainties and your anger and your frustration. You can bring your tears. You can let them tumble out at my feet and I'm not going to be afraid of them. God redeems suffering. He changes it. He does something in it. Why did he let Lazarus die? Why did he cry at the graveside? Here is my theory. Here's what I think I've learned from this. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were three of Jesus' closest friends. He needed to prove to the world that he was the resurrection and the life. John uses signs to indicate who he is all through his gospel. 
turning water into wine to show that Jesus is the one that gives a new start. Um, uh, feeding the 5,000 to show that he's the bread of life. He does it again and again and again. I think Jesus let Lazarus die and brought him back to show everybody that he had power over death and that everybody who trusted in him, everybody who trusted in him would live and not die. If it had only been him, Jesus himself, that would have been brought back to the life, people could have said, well, that's because he's Jesus. But Jesus' promise to Lazarus, and this is important theologically, is his promise to every believer. I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and he who believes in me will never die. That's true for Malcolm Duncan. And God sometimes lets people go through something in order to demonstrate to the wider world a truth. And Jesus had to ask his friend. And I think it broke his heart that his friend had to go through death, that his sisters had to watch it because it was the only way that Jesus could demonstrate to the world, I have power over this lying enemy that tells you death is the end. And it tells you that you're never going to see your loved one again. It tells you that you're separated forever and everything in you believes it. And you've got to hold on to something else. And you hold on to this. God is true and his word is true. And if Jesus said that death wasn't the last word, then we believe it. And it shapes us. And it gives us hope and courage and confidence. He said there were two things at the beating heart of a Christian response to suffering. That's one, and I know this message is longer than normal. Please bear with me, it's an important message. The second is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It is so profound and so simple and so life-giving that it changes everything. In the Second World War, a German prisoner of war called Jürgen Moltmann was imprisoned in Britain and he was struggling after the war with all that he had seen the German Nazis do he didn't know how to cope with it, he didn't know how to handle it he became a follower of Jesus Christ still alive and he wrote a book in the late 1950s and the early 1960s called The Crucified God in the book, he tells this story. Toward the end of the Second World War, in a concentration camp, an emaciated Jewish boy tried to escape. And as a result, a German Nazi guard was killed. As a punishment, 10 of the inmates were hanged. And everybody in the camp was forced to walk past them. One young man called Elie Weissel was present in the camp. And his faith in God died on the day that he saw a young Jewish boy who was so emaciated that he didn't break his neck when he hung. He choked to death. And as Elie Weissel and the crowd, the line of Jewish inmates were forced to watch this despicable spectacle... Somebody in front of him turned to him and said, where's your God now? The same as they did with Lazarus. And Weissel said, there, 
Because as far as he was concerned, his faith in God died the day that happened. Jürgen Moltmann returns to, he wrote about it, by the way, in a book called The Night, if you want to read it. Jürgen Moltmann returns to the story. And he said, where was God on that day? As a, a, a soldier in the, um, the German army, where was God during that time? And here's what he says. The answer was right. Weissel's answer was right. God is there. But not observing. He was in the suffering. He was in the pain. He was in the loss. He was experiencing the devastation and the death and the utter desolation of what was going, through, going on in that camp. And that's the heart of Christian faith about suffering. God doesn't explain it. He enters it. He steps into it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is described in Isaiah chapter 53 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who we are told in Luke 23 and 24 had to suffer many things, who Hebrews 5 and 4 tells us was a priest that could understand what we had gone through and was perfected through suffering. Christian faith believes that God can look you in the eye in the midst of your worst suffering and he can say, I've suffered too. There's nothing that you have gone through that I don't understand. Not as a judge, not as somebody sitting aloof, not as someone high and mighty looking down at us and saying, well, look what you've had to go through. He has suffered. And there is no greater place, there is no worse place to look about suffering than on the cross where this innocent man is lambasted and ridiculed and butchered and blood poured from his hands and his feet No one deserved that, and he never deserved it. He never deserved the pain. He never deserved the ridicule. He never deserved the laughter. He never deserved to be disregarded. He did it because he loved us. And in the face of the worst suffering that the world has ever thrown at anyone, God said, throw it on me. I'll carry it. I'll endure it. I'll go through it. I'll experience it. Every other faith tells you that suffering is a consequence of sin or it's a consequence of this or that and that God will understand it. But never does any faith anywhere in the universe claim that God enters it. And we have at the beating heart of our faith, I'm looking for one in here. There isn't one. We'll have to get a cross on the wall, fellas. A cross. The symbol of execution, the ultimate symbol of suffering. And God looks us in the eye and he says, one day I'll answer every question you've got. But until then, look at the cross. Look at what I went through for you. Look at what I endured for you. Look at how I carried it. And that'll tell you my answer to suffering. Some people talk about the gift of suffering. I never knew what that meant. I always thought it was a bit twee. 
I think I've come to understand it a bit. On the night that my nephew died, my brother got angry with me. And he said, why did your God let this happen? I asked him a question that has hung in the air for four years. He has three children, I have four. My daughter, my sister had one. So he lost her whole family. I said to my brother, which of your children would you have given so that Jonathan could live? He said, none. I said, no, I wouldn't have given any of my four either. But I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because God did. A father and a son agreed that they would go through it for you and for me. If all of you needed somebody to die for you, I wouldn't volunteer my children. You might think that makes me a bad pastor. Live with it. I'd let you all die before I'd sacrifice one of my children for you because I'm not perfect. But God did. How can that not melt a heart? Before all of this stuff, I saw the world in light blues and reds and yellows and greens. I now see it in deeper colors. I see beauty more profoundly than I've ever seen it. I hold on to hope more profoundly than I've ever held on to it in my life. Music has a new meaning to me. A walk by the park has a new meaning. Enjoying the sun, coffee with my family, breath, a day to live. My life, I've discovered, has two keys, a major one that is triumphant and hopeful and a minor one that has sorrow woven into it and it makes it a better song. But here's the most important gift of suffering in my life. I think I always wondered what would happen to my faith if the bottom fell out of my world? Would I still believe it? And the answer is, I still believe him. The bottom has fallen out of my world. Not once, but half a dozen times. And I still believe this to be true. God is still good. And his love 
still endures forever. And no one and nothing can take the place of a friend who lives at the center of your life like Jesus Christ. A few, weeks, a few months ago, I said to God, I can't go through this again. Do you know what he said to me? I said to him, I can't bury someone I love again, not for a while. And God said to me, Malcolm, you will never bury your best friend because he's died and risen again and you will never attend his funeral. When you discover and realize that to be true, you can face anything because he's promised never to leave us. Now, I don't know where each of you are this evening, watching online or in this room. I haven't given you the comprehensive five-point theological answer to suffering because I don't think it's what any of us need. And the Bible doesn't give it. But I think God is here. And he wants to comfort and give hope. So let's pray together. I am aware of the profundity of the human experience. I'd like you to bow your heads out of respect for one another. And unusually this evening, I'm going to um, invite one or two additional responses to those that I normally invite. This is a general question. If God has said something to you this evening, raise your hand. I'm not asking about you returning your life. I'm just saying, has he said, I'm here? Has he helped you? Has he... You may be a strong Christian. If he's spoken to you, just put your hand up. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can take your hands down. In a moment, I'm going to pray. But first, I want to ask two questions of those online and those here. If you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ and have discovered tonight that he is the answer to the most profound questions and that you are ready to acknowledge your need of him, I'm not asking you to join Dundonald Elam Church. But if you want to embrace 
the God who has suffered for you. You need to give him your heartache and your pain. Then whilst no one else is looking, please put up your hand. Don't be embarrassed about that. I don't know if there's anybody here that isn't a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're online and you're making that decision, could you email my colleague, Pip Kerr? His email is pip at dundonaldelam.church. He'll help you. My second question. is if you need God to help you right this moment in what you're going through. I want to pray for you. Just let me know that you need me to pray for you by raising your hand, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. So many people. Thank you. You can take your hand down again. Just give you one more opportunity. Thank you, sir. God is present by the power of his Holy Spirit. Would you like to stand with me, please? Could the worship group come back? Lord, you know every person. You know the depth of what you have said into our hearts tonight. You know every one that has made a response. And you know their reason for responding. Come by your grace and by your power. And give hope and courage and peace to each person. We cast ourselves again on your mercy. We can't do life without you. And we gladly acknowledge our need of you. For every person who has made a response to you, Lord, come and bring courage. Come and bring strength. Come and bring peace. Hold us in the hollow of your hand. For those whose hearts are breaking because they've lost people they've loved, they've gone through terrible things. Let your spirit be their strength. Let your word bring them comfort. Help them to know that you understand what they've gone through. I pray for those joining us online around the world right now, particularly for somebody called Gary. I pray for my friend Peter. I pray for Elizabeth. For so many people that have had to walk through difficult pathways, be their strength. 
Lord, you hear the tears being shed in this room. You know the heartbreak. Come by your Spirit and bring comfort and grace and peace. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The worship band are going to lead us as we begin to bring our gathering to a close. Sometimes, as a pastor, you want to take people's pain and heartbreak away, and you can't do it. You can never do it. But what I can do is pray for you. So if you need someone to pray with you tonight, in a minute or two, Pip's going to close the service off. And I'm going to go and stand here. And if all of you need me to pray with you, then you're, you'll be here all night. But you can go home. But I would like to just have the opportunity and the privileges, if you need someone, just to pray God's peace into your heart. It would be an honor to do that. You don't have to be a member or a regular attender at Dundonald if you're here as a guest. And you'd like me to pray for you. It would be my privilege to do so. I'll just be standing here. Come as these songs are being sung. Thank you.